I asked Brad Cole for a slide. That it's quite a picture, of course, to see. And now we now one of the people in the picture is no more, because Osama bin Laden was uh, was killed uh, uh, less than a week ago, and uh, and I'm not going to comment on that because I, I I'll reserve reserve those uh, comments to to the other topic the cosmic conflict and the future of america <clears throat> but uh, but i just it just occurred to me that you have a striking uh, that this was quite a striking idea and and if it is true that that god is work is reaching out to to everybody how does he do it you know how does he do it and how do we supposedly representing God, how do we reach out, you know, how do we do conflict resolution, and, and uh, it, isn't, it doesn't follow that everyone whose feet have been washed by Jesus becomes a follower of Jesus, but it does seem to be a policy on the part of Jesus to wash uh, people's feet, including the feet of his enemies, and, in, and even known enemies, even those who are plotting against him, and it is known to him that yeah, they're plotting against him, he seems to be doing, doing strange things. So, so how do, it is not, not entirely relevant to put Jesus sort of in the face of world leaders and, and, and see what, how, does he, how does he speak to the world. And, uh, and this, of course, the text in John 13 is a text where Jesus Knowing where he came from, knowing where he was going, he takes off his cloak, he takes off his coat and, and puts on his towel. That, that is a, a sort of, there is a consciousness of power on the part of Jesus, and this is how, what he does next then. So that might be something to return to. Obama's appro approval ratings in the poll have gone up all across the board. In the New York Times, there is a list of, of all the voter groups. Democrats, Republicans, Independents, all have, uh, he has had a bounce in the opinion polls. The biggest bounce is among evangelical Christians. The evangelical Christians, his approval rating was 30% before uh, Osama bin Laden was killed, and it went up to 50%. <coughs> so there was a 20% bounce in the, in the opinion polls among, among evangelicals. The cosmic conflict, I, I want to introduce this topic on a, a little bit of a personal note, because when I came to St. Andrews, University of St. Andrews, to do my work on the book of Revelation, I've told you this before, that, that my advisors, my, my professors, were not very enthusiastic about uh, someone wanting to do it on... on uh, Revelation on the cosmic conflict, because the tendency among scholars is to read Revelation more as a political commentary, or as a as a as a critique of the Roman Empire uh, and uh, and political realities contemporary to to the author. And what about Satan? What about you know this this background that has kind of receded it is it does not carry much prestige in the scholarly community so so i thought that was really difficult because if my advisors do not see any light in, in me doing this topic what should i do if they do not find it persuasive if they don't find it even relevant to to contemporary issues why why 
what shall I do? You know, and I was, I was just groping about. One of my advisors, who is now the, the dean of theology at, uh, at uh, Baylor University, at their school of theology. There, he's a lovely, lovely person, and he was giving me some, some sort of, cosmic conflict uh, sources uh, that that he thought well you know at least would appease me somewhat, you know, would sort of put me at ease that I could go that route. There is a person by the name of Walter Wink, who has, uh, uh, Walter Wink, W, W, two W's, he has written a series of books on, on uh, 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 confronting the powers, his concept is the powers, and he's written three or four books on the powers, identifying the powers, and so on where he almost personifies evil, but he doesn't quite do it. He doesn't, there is no person at the end of the, of the, of the story. There, uh, there is more a sort of evil as a, uh, what should I say, it is a composite of, of, of structural problems in the world that amounts to evil that is hard to, to, to understand. So, so, he was giving me that, and, and he was a little disappointed, I think, that I did not get, you know, that I, uh, that I did not say, well, that's it, that's what I'll do. Because <laughs> I said, I, I, you know, there is a person there. there is a, it's personified from, this, from the, the ground up. So, in my reading, there is a, another person who has written a book, Elaine Pagels. I have mentioned her before here, Pagels. She has written many books. One of her books is uh, The Origin of Satan, is uh, one of her, <coughs> her, her, her uh, titles. And, uh, and she's a very learned scholar. She's the, most, uh, uh, she's the foremost expert on the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, you know, the Nag Hammadi finds in Egypt. That is the second, probably the second most important archaeological discovery, next to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and she has written on on uh, uh, sort of ideas about about the evil, the origin of Satan, uh, and and she has some insights in that book. But what was valuable most to me is that she referred quite at length in that book to the, uh, the early Christian church apologist, Origen. And I will mention him a little, and say a little bit more about him. Uh, because in one of Origen's books, a book uh, called Contra Celsum Against Celsus, Origen, as an early voice in Christianity, he defends, he lays out a cosmic conflict theology, a cosmic conflict story that I had never heard of. I was just amazed. Uh, I just couldn't believe it. I kept reading these pages in Elaine Pagel's book because she, she quotes at length from, from, uh, from Contra Salsum. And, and then, then I, this led me to, to look into this, and I spent six months quite almost exclusively reading Origin. Because I and then I wrote it up as best I could, and I intended it to be a chapter in my dissertation, but there is a word limit on dissertations in the UK, so I quickly understood that it 
I, uh, it would probably, if I were going to do serious exegesis of Revelation, I would have to sacrifice all that hard work that I really would have, it would have, it would have made my, my dissertation or my book more, more interesting, I think. But, but anyway, I've published a little on it. The good part, the good consequence of that is that when I turned that into my advisors, they had, it was sort of a wake up call to them because they didn't know either. They did not know that the early church took the cosmic conflict theme seriously any more than I had known it. Because what did I think? I thought that the cosmic conflict theology from my Adventist background was pretty much something that I owed, that we owed, that Christians owed to maybe John Milton to some extent and maybe Ellen G. White. Certainly in Adventism, Ellen G. White's name would be uh, would be inseparable from cosmic conflict perspective. So my, my, this was a, a, just an amazing discovery for me. And when I published it in Andrews University Seminary Studies, I discovered that, that hardly anyone in the Adventist scholarly community seemed to know either. They just seemed to not have, have gone there and explored this. Now there is a reason for that. And the reason for that is that Origen, he lived from about, these are his dates, this is A.D., that Origen, from an Adventist point of view, is, is a mixed blessing because he did not agree with the Sabbath. He has, a, he has a, quite, a, quite an, un, the way he sets up the Sabbath is quite bad and doesn't reflect well on him because his argument is a very poor argument. And then he is also very much influenced by the anthropology of Plato. So Plato, of course, believed in soul and body, uh, soul and body dualism. And Origen is very much influenced by Platonic thought because he lived in which city? What is Origen's city? He lived in the Boston of his age. The Boston, then I think about Harvard and MIT, I think about it as the educational capital of, 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 the, of that world. And the educational capital of that time was which city? It was Alexandria in Egypt. You know, Alexandria in Egypt for a couple of hundred years before the time of Jesus and for a couple of hundred years after, for three, four hundred years, Alexandria is the go-to place. If you really want to get, you know, a prestigious degree, you go to Alexandria. And, and this is where, where Origen had, uh, grew up. And so Plato, of course, did not live in Alexandria, but I will, I will just sort of justify the skepticism toward, toward uh, Origen to some extent. Here is Plato, and he dies about 350 BC. And then the way Plato trans transmits his influence to Christians is partly because of the Hellenistic environment, you know, that you live in a world, you live in a, in a Hellenistic world, you live in a world. What sort of world do we live in today? 
We live in an Americanized world. We, we, we feel the influence of America everywhere. You, can, you go to, to Tibet, you go to Afghanistan, not just because there is war in Afghanistan. You go to Norway, you eat in McDonald's, you wear blue jeans, you, know, you, listen, you watch American movies. You know, there is, we live in an Americanized world where you cannot escape American culture if you stood on your head. You just can't get away from it. And that's how it was in the Hellenized world, too. You couldn't get away from Hellenistic influences. And Plato was part of that influence, and he transmitted his, his ideas into Christian thinking through a Jewish thinker in Alexandria by the name of Philo. Philo's dates are similar to the dates of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. But Philo did not know Jesus. He did not know the Apostle Paul. And they, vice versa, they did not know of each other. But Philo is a Jewish intellectual in the city of Alexandria who is thoroughly influenced by Plato's uh, anthropological dualism, that there is soul and body, that uh, we are divided in two pieces. So Philo believes in the immortality of the soul, Origen also believes in the, in the immortality of the soul and does it in a big way. He is the most dualistic of all the church apologists. And Adventists hold such a grudge against Origen for that reason that it doesn't matter what else he could say. You know, the, the, you know what little I heard of Origen in my education was all negative. And I did not even bother to go and read it despite the fact that Origen actually, you know, yes, so he is wrong on, this, uh, on his anthropology, if you, hear, if you hear what I'm trying to say, but he has a view of the cosmic conflict where he endeavors to be a Christian. He endeavors to be a Christian in his anthropology too. He just doesn't understand it. He just, he just can't see it because the because the worldview, the conceptual framework, the way people think in his days, you really can hardly escape thinking that there is soul and body and it, the soul outlives the body and so on. So Origen is the person that I will highlight a little here and show uh, just some excerpts from his cosmic conflict thinking. The occasion for Origen writing on this subject is like this. In the late second century, a person by the name of Celsus, who was not a Christian, who was actually a, what, there is, there are various faces of Plato. Plato is the most influential philosopher of all time. In Adventist circles, we don't do much philosophy, but we neglect it to our detriment, probably. So Plato, early on, three, four hundred years before the time of Jesus, Plato's teacher was who? Socrates, of course. And then, uh, uh, so there is the early Platonic ideas, then there is Middle Platonism, which is at the time of Jesus, and then there is Neoplatonism, which is our time, and there are many people, even today, sworn to the ideas of Plato. So it has not, not gone out of fashion. It never has gone out of fashion, in fact. Celsus had written a book. Celsus, who is in some ways a Platonic philosopher, he had written a book about 175 A.D., 
against Christianity. And he writes this book because he, Christianity is becoming influential, and he wants to show how Christian belief is not worth much. Uh, he wants to, it's a, it's a sort of, it's one of the earliest, probably the earliest attack on Christian belief written by a thinking person in the, in, in, in the ancient world. There are other snippets, sort of disparaging comments on Christianity, but, but this is a, a book written specifically to counter Christians. Uh, and m many books like it have been written since that time. This book was published, and then Origen writes his book much later, about 60, 70 years later, when Celsus is dead and buried. So this is not a discussion of between two intellectuals in, that live at the same time. So it's not really a dialogue. Uh, you might say Origen talks to Celsus, but Celsus cannot talk back because Celsus is dead by now. Uh, and we, have, we do not have Celsus's book. Uh, I, me I meant to bring, bring these books today, but then uh, something happened and I wasn't able to go and pick them up. Or what we know of the content of Celsus's book, we know it because Origen quotes him copiously. He reproduces passage after passage after passage of Celsus's book. He says, then Celsus says this, then Celsus says that. He goes on to say this, and he quotes him quite, what should I say, quite, uh, he doesn't uh, demean him. He, do, he just quotes him very much sort of matter-of-factly, you might say. Uh, and, and then some scholars have taken all those quotations, all those references to what Celsus said. Some scholars have taken that and, and excerpted it from Origen's book and put it to try to re restore the original text of Celsus's book. So that has done, been done too, and I have that book, Celsus on the True Doctrine. But, you know, whether that is a complete version of Celsus's book is highly unlikely, as though Origen took Celsus's book and then went through it all the way, you know, and, and then we have the whole thing. That is probably unlikely. Origen's book is quite a book. And here is a couple more things we should know about Origen. Origen is one of the most prolific Christian writers ever to have lived. He wrote copiously. He was also a textual scholar, a textual critic of sorts. He wrote a book that I know Bernard Taylor in Loma Linda would have died to get hold of that book. He wrote a book called The Hexapla. The Hexapla is an Old Testament in six columns. One, two, three, four, five, six columns with the Hebrew text, a Hebrew transliteration, and then four Greek texts, all in parallel columns, in longhand. You know, he produced this amazing book, you know, to show what did he, why did he do it? He wanted to have the best possible resource with which Christians could quote the Old Testament and show that Christianity had, had solid basis in Old Testament scripture. And he wanted to have the best textual resources for that. He was an apologist. He was a defender of the Christian faith. 
So this enormous project he took on, in addition to writing lots of sermons, lots of books, lots of commentaries, including two, uh, two major apologetic works, Contra Celsum, Against Celsus, and another, bo another book uh, called First Principles that he wrote about 20 years earlier, before Contra Celsum. And First Principles also has a lot of Origins ideas about the cosmic conflict. So the two main books by Origin with which to, where you could read about the cosmic conflict is Contra Celsum and the other book on First Principles. Origen remains the most influential thinker in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Greek Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. Origen is the patron saint uh, and the leading thinker still in Orthodox theology. He, ha he took a beating in Roman Catholic uh, thinking. He was very influential in the Catholic Church until about... About 200 years after his death, people had a developed Christology to a point that Christology had not been developed that much in the time of or in Origins days. <clears throat> so I, I've told some of my students that it is like you and me taking an ex being asked to sit for an exam. Let's say that you did you did boards, you took boards. I took boards long ago. And then if I were to sit for boards now with no preparations, I would surely fail <laughs> or I would have to update myself. But Origen was asked, you know, the, the, the church, the Roman Catholic Church especially, made, took Origen's writings and, and tested them and held them to the standard of 200 years later and then they excommunicated him. He has been, he has been rehabilitated. Uh, since then. Origen is not very influential in Protestant theology because Luther wrote very disparaging, disparagingly about Origen. And in another, in the other place where I have written about this, I have, I have somewhat faulted Luther for his criticism for not understanding Origen's context. So this is the background then, and I'm going to just do a few excerpts here from uh, the, what Celsus, then let's do our timeline. So, 175, 244, Celsus, origin. So, first, I want to emphasize that what we, are, what we will hear first is not what origin believed, but what a non-Christian living much earlier thinks that Christians believe. So you're looking, you're accessing Christian belief through the eyes of a non-Christian quite early in the second century AD. That's important because people, we must not attribute to origin everything we're saying here. Some of the voice we hear first here is the voice of Celsus and not the voice of origin. So now let's read the first statement. Yeah. That, let's just say that, that uh, I'll just put it up like this. <clears throat> there is first a descriptive ta task. What in the eyes of non-Christians do Christians believe in the second century? And then, <clears throat> or uh, Celsus has a critical 
project, and he mixes that up, his description and his criticism, they go hand in hand. He, he doesn't separate them, he doesn't report what they believe and then criticize it, he, he sort of uh, mashes it up there. Uh, you have that criticism of, of him, and then, and then finally Celsus will say what he believes. You, will, you might be impressed or you might not be impressed when his turn comes to show that his beliefs are superior. So maybe one of you could read this this statement from uh, from Celsus. Uh, this is our our first uh, thing that relates to cosmic conflict ideas. Their utter stupidity, the Christians, can be illustrated in any number of ways, but especially with their misreading of the divine enigmas and their insistence that there exists a being opposed to God, whom they know by the name of devil. In Hebrew, Satanus, for they refer to one and the same being by various names. So what is Celsus saying here? Christians are not very intelligent. They are stupid. And then he has to prove what is it by their insistence. You know, it's not just like that is a peripheral idea. So what is... Christians are not very intelligent and their, uh, the l- lack of intelligence shows itself in what? That they believe that reality has a triangular shape. There is God, there is divine reality, there is human reality, and there is a non-human reality. By their insistence that there exists a being opposed to God whom they call, whom they know by the name of devil. And then that's the Greek, Diabolos, and the Hebrew is Satanas. You know, so, so what do... Christians believe in the second century according to the observer. Well, that's what they believe. They believe that there is a sort of cosmic perspective to good and evil. That's what they believe. That's what he's saying, and he's calling that stupid, because he, as an educated philosopher in the second century, does not believe that. So there is a being opposed to God, and that, uh, in in terms of what God is up against... What happens in human reality seems in some extent, to some extent to be less important than what is happening in non-human reality. That being that is opposed to God is not you. It's not me. It is someone who is not a human being. It is a, a being of a different order. You see that? That is kind of sort of coming on, coming on to the subject. Yes. Well... There is a, a, a lot of diversity to Greek belief at this time, but educated Greeks at this time, or people who, uh, by, by the time of, by the second century AD, uh, there is still polytheism. There is still, you know, in many ways, rampant polytheism. But among the educated elite, they are not polytheists anymore. There is, there is a sort of rudimentary monotheism, even in Socrates. And when he is put on trial hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, one of the, one of the charges against him is that he is proclaiming new divinities, that he is changing the, the pantheon, you might say. So for Celsus, we should not hear him saying he, he, he represents a, a point of view, and that point of view is, is not necessarily a polytheistic point of view. It is more likely a monotheistic view 
and where God is very much the sovereign. God is, yeah, that's uh, at least the notion of a, of, a, of, a, of a supreme divine being would be more, more compatible with, with Celsus's view. Let's go on here. One of you read this one. But they show how utterly concocted these ideas are when they go on to say that the highest God in heaven, desiring to do such and such, say, confer some great gift on man, cannot fulfill his purpose because he is opposed and thwarted by a God who is his opposite. Does this mean that the Son of God can be beaten by a devil? Yeah, what is he saying here? What's, what's he saying here? What, what's, what's the consequence, the consequence of allowing a... a non-human being here and and to if we were to say to rank these in order of significance you could <clears throat> put one here and then you would have to put two here and three here and say in order of significance it is the non-human reality here that is really really creating the trouble creating the problem so what what is it? Why does it, you know he's not exactly flattering? How utterly concocted these ideas are, and so on. When they say that the highest God of heaven can't, what is he saying? What what sort of God does he understand? A God of power, a God of power. That that view, that Christian paradigm, leaves a power deficit in God. There is a there is a there, it takes away. It takes away from God's dignity too. I, let's see. I put a headline on this one that he shows there's a kind of a weak God here from the point of view of of a non non Christian. Read this one uh, next. It is blasphemy to say that when the greatest God indeed wishes to confer some benefit upon men, he has a power which is opposed to him, and so is unable to do it. So what are we highlighting here? It's more of the same that he, he faults Christian theology for its theology. He's saying that Christian theology is a bad theology because it makes God look weak, it makes God look spineless, it takes away from God's dignity because a God worthy of the name should get his way. He should not have any sort of other other uh, concerns than you know that there is someone to oppose it, that there is some other consideration that should influence God's doings. That is simply not not good theology. That's what we're hearing him say. Uh, then he brings in Jesus. He comes to Jesus uh, and discusses Jesus. Let's read that one. I, I will not go through all the slides that I put in your handout because I, I, that, that you can read the statements yourself. Just highlight a few things here and then uh, try to put it in perspective. But the Christian notion that the Son of God accepted the punishments inflicted upon him by a devil is mere ludicrous, especially if we are to think that this is to teach us to endure punishments quietly. In my view, the Son of God had a right to punish the devil. He certainly had no reason to threaten with punishment the men he came to save, the very ones who had suffered so much from the devil's abuse. So, does Jesus, does Jesus somehow, does Jesus represent an argument or a reality that that helps Celsus? You know, so he looks at the Christian paradigm. There is a being opposed to God. That is a problem. Of course, that is a problem for him. That is problem number one, you might say. Well, the Christians, 
then we uh, Christians will bring in Jesus. And does that make the problem better or worse? Well, Jesus makes the problem even worse. You know, Jesus is no solution because here he's saying, you know, the Son of God accepted the punishment inflicted upon him by a devil is merely ludicrous. It is unjust. It doesn't make sense. You know, what should he do? I mean, what, who, should, who should put whom in his place? Well, the Son of God, if he represents God, should put the devil in his place. You know, let's get this right. If you have anything to do with God, you should be able to fix it, you know. And, and, and there is again a power paradigm here. So what we are seeing in this discussion, in my view, is not only that the early Christians believe in a cosmic conflict, but that the theology of that understanding, the theological meaning, significance of this view is also quite, quite uh, well developed, quite fully developed here. And, and so all of these things get, uh, all the things get put on, on, on their head or on its head in the, in the Christian view. Jesus then is an ungodlike figure because he submits to suffer abuse by powers that are much less good than he is, as it were. Let's uh, read this one. It is mere impiousness, therefore, to suggest that the things which were done to Jesus were done to God. Certain things are simply, as a matter of logic, impossible to God, namely those things which violate the consistency of his nature. God cannot do less than what it befits God to do, what it is God's nature to do. Even if the prophets had foretold such things about the Son of God, it would have been necessary to say, according to the axiom I have cited, that the prophets were wrong, rather than to believe that God has suffered and died. Okay, what is this axiom? Again, it's more of the same. What is this axiom? It would have been necessary to say according to the axiom I have cited. What is the axiom? That God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is powerful. There is a certain thing that you can have an idea about God and whatever you claim to be happening sort of in God's name has to be consistent with God's nature. And here we have a view that violates God's nature. And it violates God's nature specifically in, one, in what field? Power. Power deficit. There is this, it screams at you, the power deficit in the Christian, uh, Christian story. Something is happening that should not be happening if God, you know, just behaved like, like God, meaning behaving in a sort of power way. So Celsus understands God primarily in a power relation. And that is the big difference. That's the big misunderstanding. And then Origen will answer him in a moment. So, but aren't these amazing statements? There's an amazing critique. You're reading somebody taking stock, taking the pulse of Christianity, and not just, as I said, not just doing it, seeing that there is a triangular shape to the Christian view of reality, but actually spelling out what he finds offensive about that view. And 
and to sort of access that for us in in our era is not is not a, 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 does not seem to me to be a waste of time. I I was totally blown away by these things when I when I read this. I just said, "What on earth have I done? All these years, I was a student in Adventist schools, and nobody told me about this." <laughs> <laughs> and and everyone and I was trained to think that this kind of ideas that are so well developed in the writings of Ellen G. White had never before been developed in Christian writings, but that was simply not the case because here they are. You see them here in these early sources we have in, in early in the early church. <clears throat> so I find the. New, the idea that there is a personified evil in the world, I find that to have tremendous explanatory power in, pre, in terms of present reality. Now, let's summarize a few things. Celsus has not misstated the Christian belief. He doesn't like it. He thinks it's bad. But he seems to have represented it fairly well, that they actually believe that. The Christian understanding of evil has a triangular shape and a Non-human side of that triangle is hugely important. Uh, that's same point. And the early church then believed in the cosmic conflict. That was a conspicuous and important belief in the early church. Here is origin. He does. I have taken statements not only from Contra Celsum here. But here is one statement from Origen in First Principles. The name devil and Satan and wicked one is mentioned in many places of Scripture. And he who bears it is also described as being the enemy of God. This is, uh, so he has that belief. Here is a statement from, from uh, a commentary on Romans. And Romans 5, if you read Romans 5, you will see that there is nothing there that will tip you off to Satan or anything like that. But Origen has this cosmic conflict perspective. It, it sort of comes into his theology everywhere. So <clears throat> here in a comment, comment on Romans 5.10, or is it Romans 6? I can't remember now. Maybe it is in Romans, it's in Romans 5 or 6. He, he makes this comment. He who was Lucifer and who, rose, who arose in heaven, he who was without sin from the day of his birth, and who was among the cherubim, was able to fall with respect to the kindness of the Son of God before he could be bound by, the chains, of, by chains of love. You know, what is he, what is he giving you here? What's, what's this? This is a shorthand biography. This is the bullet point biography of the cosmic conflict, of the non-human reality in the cosmic conflict. He who was Lucifer, who arose in heaven, who was without sin, you know, who was among the cherubim, was able to fall with respect to the kindness of the Son of God. Now, this is a shorthand narrative of the cosmic uh, rebel, and, and, and you can hear allusions to various texts in the Old Testament there, can't you? It comes here completely gratuitous in a commentary on Romans 5 or 6. Uh, so I have said here that Origen's, Origen's view has a narratival structure because the Celsus will argue against Origen, against Christian belief as a philosopher. But Origen does not want to argue as a philosopher here. He just merely is telling a story. And 
Sometimes I ask students, what's the difference between uh, narratival and philosophical logic? So I'll ask you that too. Well, that's a great, a great expression, isn't it? Be, be, because, because being bound by the chains of love is, is a metaphor for or, in origin. Origin does not think that you should ever be bound because he thinks that, that, every, that a relationship between a human being and God should be a relationship of freedom. So chains of love is in some ways a, an internally inconsistent uh, expression because chains, love does not do chains, you know. So chains of love must be, must be the chain of freedom in a sense. It is, a, it is an expression that is, doesn't really, you know, you see what I'm trying to say? It is an internally inconsistent, it's a metaphorical expression. It means that you are bound tightly but you are bound in freedom. That's what I would say. You're, you're, you're bound, bound, you know, in, in, in obligated by something that, that might seem like chains, but it is, it is the chain of love, as it were. Here, he strives to retain a Christian narrative. He is not, because the, the Christian idea of Lucifer is not a philosophically grounded idea. It is a, an idea grounded in what? In Revelation. You know, it is, a, it is a story that has been given to us through, through revelation, and it is not something that was developed philosophically. I just wanted to do the part on the narrative there. Uh, uh, so anyone want to uh, explain the difference between philosophy and narrative? What's, uh, I'll tell you what, philo- what narratival logic is. I, I, the example I... I use is, uh, I ask a student, uh, what did you do this morning? So I'll ask you, Brent, what did you do today, this morning? You went for a walk? Uh huh. You got up? Yeah. You got rest? Uh huh. And then you went for a walk? Uh huh. And then, did you drive here or you walked here? Uh huh. Okay. And now you're here. Now, what is, why is he telling us this? Why is he telling us? What? <laughs> well, this is like a coercive interrogation, you know. <laughs> he is telling us that because that's what happened. And that's narrative logic. Narrative logic is simple. It tells you what happened. You know, it doesn't say if so, any sort of... You know, you can ask questions. We can ask you why, and, 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 and you can explain certain things to us. But narrative logic begins with narrative. It does not begin with a philosophical question. Now, does it give rise to questions? Isn't it strange that these things happened? You know, one person, and I think I have quoted him in that handout I sent out, uh, John Hick, he says that sin, if that the notion of Lucifer, he's a Christian theologian who deals with good and evil. John Hicks says the notion that sin came into the world is completely philosophically a non-viable idea. You You could not have perfection and then have sin. Philosophically, that's impossible. So if you have sin, it means that you did not have perfection which is an important idea to John Hicks, who wants to make these things philosophically plausible. Now, by philosophical logic, that seems like at all 
you know, told order to do that. You have sin, and you said you had perfection. You could not move from perfection to sin, philosophically. But you moved. The story says exactly that. That is what the narrative gives you. You had perfection, and you have sin. That's narrative logic. So how could you have that? Well, you know, the, the, the narrative will say you're obligated by the narrative, and the narrative will not, the narrative will not take a no from philosophy. It will not be defeated by philosophy. It will hold, the, it will hold philosophy to the narrative, to the narratival pa- parameters. The story is like this. Okay, uh, now the sources origin has our sources familiar to us. The way he argues for the relevance of Isaiah 14 and the relevance of, of Ezekiel 28, it's priceless. I really, I really recommend it, the way he argues and says, can't you see that this is more than a human phenomenon? And, and he argues that, and I wish modern theologians who disagree with origin on this point I wish they would read it because Origen has a very excellent argument there. And then he says there are lots of texts there. Uh, <clears throat> and I, those of you, if some of you have not been on our mailing list and would like to receive that background reading I sent out to those who are on the mailing list, please let me know and I will send it to you too. Uh, and uh, the, these are... Uh, so I'm just going to go skip by these now because <clears throat> because I want to go to a uh, I'd like you to re- do some of this reading on your own. Uh, now quickly to Celsus, when we come to Celsus and his and Origen discusses uh, what Celsus is saying, how does he explain evil? Well, first of all, he explains it philosophically. And then he says that evil resides in, resides in matter, not in choice. There is evil in the world because there is material, material reality. That's a Platonic idea. So here Celsus is showing his Platonism. And then he says that evil has always, always existed in the same amount. It's always been there, will always be there, never go away. Evil, does it have a beginning to Celsus? No. Does it have an ending? No. So there is a kind of, you're kind of stuck. There is a deterministic uh, uh, sort of frame to, to his uh, te- texture, to his ideas. History to uh, Celsus is cyclic. It is not linear as in the Christian paradigm. And his outlook is deterministic and, and very pessimistic. And I say in my, uh, my uh, critique of Celsus, I say that he goes up uh, with a bang, and comes down with a whimper because he makes you think that he is going to give a very superior explanation. But when he has done it, you are very unimpressed. Most readers of Celsus are very unimpressed by what he brings, you know, in, to, in terms of to, to, to this uh, discussion. What happened to cosmic conflict theology in the minutes that remain? We have it here in origin. And then in the Next century, we have a big change in the fortunes of Christianity with the conversion of the emperor Constantine. And so 
as to make it necessary for us to think in terms of pre-Constantinian and post-Constantinian Christian theology. The first great uh, theologian or church person after Constantine is Augustine, who was also an African who, uh, and, and, uh, and who, whose influence is greater than origins by far, uh, you know, from our times. It's curious that when people look, you know, in, in contemporary Christian theology, when people try to say, well, you know, is there a cosmic conflict, cosmic, cosmic conflict paradigm in Christianity, there is a, a, a um, philosopher in the U.S. today, one of the most influential philosophers by the name of Alvin Plantinga. Has any one of you been exposed to Alvin Plantinga? Alvin Plantinga is a great Christian apologist. He's very, very clever. You know, I, I, I want to avoid him. He's just very clever. <laughs> uh, and, and, and has many interesting ideas. But when he wants to discuss cosmic conflict uh, perspectives as a theologian, it is quite revealing that he goes to Augustine and not to Origen. Even though in Augustine, the narrative, the cosmic conflict narrative is, is bleached. The colors are fading. It is not so much, it's not such a strong sort of take it or leave it narrative anymore. It is more a philosophical idea. And here, origin, in the days before Constantine, origin represents a Christian community that is persecuted. They are a persecuted minority, and they really need freedom. They need to argue the right to believe, to have their beliefs. They need freedom of conscience. They need to... to uh, so, so you might say that, that the political context of Origen and his theology fits very much into that cosmic conflict idea. Now, when Augustine comes in, he says that sin came into the world because there is freedom. Because he, he also argues from a cosmic conflict perspective. But if you ask Augustine, will you allow me to follow my conscience? What will Augustine say? If you ask Origen, will you allow me to follow my conscience? Origen might say, you are choosing a belief that is a very bad belief. You shouldn't do it. But will he let you do it? Origen will let you do it. He has no choice. His theology gives him no choice, and he has nothing else with which to work. Now, when, when you come to Augustine, Augustine will say there is sin in the world because there was freedom. But if you ask him, will you let me follow my beliefs, the dictates of my conscience, Augustine will say, for your own good, for your own good, I will coerce you to change your beliefs. Because Augustine does not really believe in freedom. He doesn't believe in it as a, as a, as a, as a, as a rea reality in the present. So here is the deal. What happened to cosmic conflict theology? Well, we forgot Origen. He disappeared. We, in many ways, forgot Constantine too. And with all, we are all left with Augustine. And we are left with the sort of worldview, with the sort of context that fits a post-Constantinian world without really knowing how it was before or who they were, those who thought before this time. 
Cosmic conflict theology looked like this, God, human beings, and a third reality. And then it shrunk, it changed to become like this. Only God and human beings uh, mattered. There is a sort of two-dimensional, or the, the, third, the third corner of the triangle was lost. Cosmic conflict theology is very detrimental to any notion of coercion. So I'll, I'll give you my, my paradigms here. Uh, somebody has said, Eric Osborne in Australia has said, theodicy gave way to triumphalism. And he says that, and, uh, so, so this is my, my uh, representation of it. You used to have cosmic conflict theodicy, and then inside of that you had other issues, Trinity, Soteriology, Christology, all these other issues, concerns that Christians have. But all of those concerns belonged in the context of a cosmic conflict theology, cosmic conflict theodicy. That framework was left and what was, was lost, and what you have left is a smaller picture, a smaller, more detailed picture, you see, here is the big picture, and then you have some details within the, small, within the bigger picture, but the big picture has been lost. And even in our church, even in Adventism, I think we are still not fully aware of how much that has changed theology and how, much the things, how things would be different if, uh, if we had you know, retraced our steps and tried to recover, recover the lost ground. So. Okay, our time is up, and next time Mil Melissa will do more on Milton and, and cosmic conflict perspectives from Milton.